Good morning, Harmony. How are we doing? All right, here we go. So we've been talking about the four spiritual laws. The four spiritual laws are a very simple and easy way for us to break down the gospel, to show the story of how it is that we need a Savior, why we need a Savior. And the reason that this is important for us is twofold. One, you need to acknowledge in your own life, do you know these truths? Are you at church just because you feel like it's you know, goody two-shoe points with God? Are you here because that's how you were raised? Are you here because it makes you feel less guilty about the bad things you do throughout the week? Why are you here? Hopefully the answer is, I'm here because I have a relationship with God. Amen. And where I desire to be is in His presence. Where I desire to be is in a place where I can worship Him. Where I desire to be is surrounded by a family who also lifts up God and loves them with all their hearts. Amen. Now, I'll be completely honest. I know... That's not the answer for everybody in this room. And I sure as heck know that's not the answer for every single person who goes to church on Sundays. A lot of us go to church because we want something. We're not in love with God. We're in love with what God has. We're going to Him to say, fix my marriage, fix my finances, fix my mentality, fix me, fix that. We want His power. We want His love. We want what He can give, but we don't actually want Him. If that's you, you got to flip the way you think. Christianity is not about obeying these horrible rules that are boring and hard to follow, but there's a huge payoff at the end. The point of Christianity is that you are in a loving, life-changing relationship that reshapes everything you think, everything you do, and it becomes your purpose in life. Amen. It was funny this week, uh, Nicole and the kids went to Corpus for a few days. And... Um, I was telling my buddy at work, he has four kids, and he was like, you're going to enjoy it? Like a couple nights, quiet? And at first I thought like, yeah, it might be kind of nice, you know, go home and I can just veg out, I can, you know, have peace and quiet. You know what? I hated it. <laughs> I hated it. Because you know what my favorite part of the day is? When the key hits the door and I hear those feet running my way. My favorite part of my day is being with them. So when they're not there, that means my favorite part of the day isn't there. And so it should be the same way with you in church. It should be the same way with you in your Bible. It should be the same way with you in prayer. This isn't something you do because you have to. It's not something you do because you're guilted into. It should be the moment you're looking forward to. It should anger you if someone said, hey, no church this weekend. But I know half of us this morning, we looked at that alarm clock, didn't we? You know, one Sunday... Just to sleep in wouldn't be that bad, right? We have this mentality we have to flip around. And so as we talk about the four spiritual laws, look at it from two angles. One, do I personally know these truths? Are these things that live in my heart? Are these the things that have motivated me to be here today? Second, am I capable to tell other people about this? you got to remember, as Christians, we are the one religion where God has said, don't just take the treasure I give you, hoard it for yourselves and be like, I'm good. He said, no, you know the truth. You know the path. Go tell others. Go share it. Invite people. Bring people. How selfish of you to discover an amazing, life-changing love and go, can't talk to anybody about it. No, this should be something that defines everything about you. So look at it from those two angles. Here we go. Law one. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Okay? So contrast that to 
God is a big, angry old man who's writing down everything wrong I do, and it gives me a bunch of rules to follow that are not fun. Which, a lot of people think about God that way. And to be honest, a lot of that is our faults, pastors. Why? We love to focus on the rules. Don't do this. Don't do that. 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 Right? Well, when all you're ever being told is what not to do, that's not a lot of fun. Right? Have you ever been to a super awesome party that started with 25 minutes of what you're not allowed to do tonight? No! No one enjoys that. So we love to focus on the behavior modification of Christianity when that's not the point. The point is not to create a group of people who are morally superior to other individuals. The point is to create a bunch of people who are unbelievably in love with God. And because of that, they love other people to an extreme no one else understands. That's the point. And where that stems from is Ultimately, you got a God who loves you and has a wonderful plan for you. The whole thing's built on love. Law two. Who messed it up? We did. Okay? We love to have this conversation about, well, why does God let this happen? Why does God let that happen? Where's God now? Why isn't he saving you from this? We, God didn't break it. We did. For a world of love to exist, you and I have to have choice. Which means we can choose to go his path, or we can choose to go our own. Historically, do you know what men have chosen? To go their own path. Well, the moment you choose a path that is built by a selfish, greedy, self-centered sinner, guess what happens? The world gets painful. The world gets painful. So all this pain that you and I experience, whether it's financial strife, whether it's physical strife, Well, there's relational strife. Do you know where that comes from? Not from him. It comes from us. It comes from the sin that guides us each and every day. And if you don't think you're sinful, let me just ask you this. How many times a day are your thoughts motivated by this? What do I want? Think how many decisions a day where the only thing you're thinking about is, what do I want? We are a self-centered people. Because of that, we have broken this world. Now, here's the beautiful part. God loved us so much that even after we messed up what He created, He said, I'm still going to save them. They messed it up, but I'm going to find a way to bring them back to me. And that path was not easy. It required Him to take His one and only Son, whom He loved above all else, Let that son come to this earth where he was beaten, mocked, and ultimately put to death for our sins. But because of that, because Jesus was willing to pay the debt that you and I owed, we now have the opportunity to have a right relationship with God again. So that separation that was created because of sin, Jesus came in and gone, I have bridged that gap. You can once again walk in harmony with your Father. And that gets us to law number four, where we're at today. We must place our faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord to receive salvation. There's a couple things I want to point out here. There has long been a debate in the church about how much effort goes into this step here. 
people want to argue about, well, we got to be clear here, when we accept Jesus, I'm not doing anything that makes me deserving of salvation. And so the important thing to understand about the step of acceptance is your acceptance doesn't mean that you're brilliant. It doesn't mean that you're holy. It doesn't mean that you're special. Your acceptance of God's love just simply means that your eyes have been opened by the grace of God to see what your Father has done for you. When you accept Him, that's not you saying, I'm superior. That's you just acknowledging, I understand what God has done for me. The second thing that's important here, as I put this word in specifically, is the word Savior and Lord. The reason I think 80% of Americans still say they're Christians, yet we obviously are not a Christian nation, is because people have accepted Jesus as their Savior, they will never accept Him as their Lord. Those two things are very, very different. Savior is a one-time action. Savior means you were in a burning building about to die. The hero showed up, threw the broken building off of you, picked you up, threw you on his shoulders, and walked you out of the building. Awesome, right? Absolutely awesome. But does that action mean that you guys will have a relationship for the rest of your life? No. What Jesus did on the cross for us is not debatable. Can't change it. It happened. Jesus came to earth, died on the cross for our sins, three days later rose. That's what makes Him Savior. Lord describes the relationship that we have with Him every single day. Every single day. And so what I want to talk about is what describes a relationship where you and I truly treat God Truly treat Jesus, not just as our Savior, but we treat Him as our Lord. And before we jump into that, let me just give you one verse, the scariest verse in the entire Bible. If you have your Bibles, look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Scariest verse in the entire Bible, in my opinion. In Matthew 7, Jesus is talking to the congregation of people that are following Him, and He says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to you, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So why is that verse so scary? What that verse shows is there are going to be people who on the day of judgment will stand at the gates of heaven looking at Christ going, look at what I did for you. I had an 87% Sunday school attendance. I only missed church when I was really sick. I used to give to the Annie Armstrong offerings. I did community service projects. I was really nice to that neighbor who I thought was a jerk, but I did it because of you. And because of these things, I deserve to go to heaven. And Jesus is going to look at him and go, but I don't know who you are. I don't know you. That's a, it's a great resume you put together here, but the standard to get in here is that I know you. See, the difference between Lord and Savior is, is that Lord is about a relationship that happens because you actually know who Jesus is. Because every single day you talk to Him. Because every single day you walk with Him. 
You've heard his voice, you've felt his love, and you have a personal relationship together. That's why the best news I can tell you is when you get to heaven, there are going to be people you are going to be shocked to see there. You're going to be like, that loser? Really? He was a screw-up his entire life. How did he get here? Because he knew Jesus. Because he knew Jesus. And there's going to be some people standing on the outside gates like, "Uh, hello? I was highly intelligent. I'm a highly special individual. I was better than all my peers. How am I not in? And he's going to be like, you didn't know Jesus. You didn't have a relationship with him. Now, frankly, some people hate that because some people want to turn Christianity into a game. They want to turn it into a game to see who can do Christianity the best. Who knows the most verses? Who attends church the most? Who listens to the Christian radio station all the time and nothing else? They, they turn into this game of behaviors. And really what that game is about is I'm better than you. And there's some people who are like, I'm a mess up. I'm glad God lets mess ups in, in the heaven. Because that's me. I need that kind of God. Alright? So as we look at this, keep that in mind. Here's a few things. One, if you treat God as your Lord, if God is your Lord, you will seek God's will, not yours. Number one way Christians mess up praying is we pray, God, here is my will. Bless it. God, I have decided I want this job. Make it happen. God, I've decided this is the woman I want to marry. I need her to see that I'm the answer. Make it happen, God. We're basically treating God like a genie in the bottle. Here's my wishes. Please use your power to make it happen. And let's be honest. Have you ever had the conversation with God where you've reminded him of the good things you've done? Have you ever done that one? Please tell me I'm not the only one. God, I really want this. And just as a reminder, like, I'm a pastor. Um, You know, I go to church a lot, you know. I've helped introduce you to a few people, you know. So, I mean, if you want to throw them on one my way, you know, I'd appreciate it. It doesn't work that way. This isn't a system where we buy God's favor. When you pray, what you should be praying is, God, let your will be done. God, reveal to me what your will is for my life. God, where do you want me to go? God, what do you want me to say? God, what do you want me to do? Not God, here's my plan, make it happen. Because let's be honest. In a world where you show up and go, here's my plan, make it happen, you're the boss, not the employee. Right? How many of you get to tell your bosses, this is how it's happening today? <laughs> not very often, right? No. I was laughing this week. We, uh, we have this department at work. And uh, it's a bunch of younger people who, who are kind of like their first jobs. And they're very confused by the concept that when we show up and go, you're going to work on this, that they have to do that. We were talking into this week, and they're like, you know what would be better? is like if you guys would go, here's our whole list of projects we'd like to get done, and then we could pick the ones we wanted to work on. And all of us who've been in the corporate world for a while just kind of looked at each other and started laughing. Like, do you understand what a job is? Guess what? If that's the way the world works, no bathrooms are getting cleaned. Because nobody's going, oh, I got that. I want to do the bathrooms. That's my thing. But 
what's funny is we take the same mentality and we treat God with it. My will, God, bless it. It's not what the Bible refers to. Look at Matthew 6.33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What Jesus was saying is, guys, I know there's a lot of things you want in life. And a lot of the things you want are bad. Is it wrong for you to want a good marriage? Absolutely not. Is it wrong for you to want to have children that love you and respect you? Absolutely not. Is it wrong for you to want to have some comfort in your life? Absolutely not. But if you want those things more than you want God's will, you've got a problem. And what Jesus was saying here is, guys, I'm your father. I love you. I know everything about you. I handcrafted you. I built you. I know exactly what your purpose is. Trust me, I will give you what you need. But please first, seek my kingdom. Make that your priority. Make that your goal. And here's the honest part. We don't do this. We really don't. How many of you, your Bible reading time is whatever few minutes you have left at the end of the night? Right? How many of you, is it, you know, what I'll give to the church financially is whatever money's left over at the end of the month? How many of you is it when it comes to serving at the church and in the ministry go, well, whatever time I have free, I will do those kind of things? That's not seeking the kingdom first. Seeking the kingdom first is I will be in the Word today. I don't know what else will happen, but I will be in the Word today. I will have a conversation with my father today. What else happens, I'm not sure yet, but that will get done because that's priority one. Most of us, we flip it the other way. I will go to work today. I will eat lunch today. I will watch my Monday night show because it's Monday nights and it's my favorite show. I will watch football for three hours today. I'll do the fantasy draft. And then if there's 15 minutes I can carve out, I might read a chapter of the Bible. And let's be honest, a lot of times we fall asleep while doing that. It's not seeking the kingdom first. The kingdom's got to be the priority. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, Jesus teaches us to pray. And he says, this is the prayer you should have. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. As you look at this passage, I want you to pay attention to this prayer because God's not saying you should say exactly these words over and over again. Now we do. I say the Lord's Prayer quite a bit in my life. But what He's really presenting to you is a model of how your prayers should sound. And notice the structure. When He starts to pray, what does He first do? One, He acknowledges His Father in what? In emotional terms. My Father. You know, people used to get mad at Jesus for that. A lot of the people of the day, the way they would pray to God was with these lofty terms, Almighty, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Yahweh. And Jesus would go, Dad. And they'd go, who do you think you are 
to refer to him as dad. They go, I'm his son. So I call him dad. See, Jesus realized this needs to be an intimate relationship. When you're close to somebody, you don't walk in and give them a formal title. You walk in and you go, Dad, can we talk? Let's have Jesus addressed. Father, Abba, Dad. Hallowed be your name. What's his first focus? Making sure it's acknowledged. God, I get it. You're Dad, I'm Son. You, you need to be hallowed. You need to be acknowledged as holy. Your place in king, the kingdom needs to be acknowledged. First and foremost, with my voice, let me acknowledge you are God, not me. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not until he acknowledges those things does he start to talk about his own needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Please help provide for what I need today. Please forgive me my sins. Please also let me have good relationships with other people. It's not until he acknowledges the placement of his father and that his father's will must be done first that he then asks for the things he longs for. That's how your prayer should sound. Acknowledge first your relationship. Acknowledge second God's will. Third, talk about what you actually need from your father. That's how we should be praying. Look at Mark 14, 36. And he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. These are the words of Jesus in the garden the night before his death. As he's about to be nailed to a cross, he starts to pray and he starts to say, God, if there is any other way for this to happen, if there's any other way that I can save these people, please remove this from me. But as soon as those words are off of his lips, what does he say? But Father, your will be done, not mine. This reveals to us, did Jesus want to be on that cross? Was he worried about it? Was he scared about the pain he was going to face? Yes! Now did he do it? Yes! Why? Because his dad needed him to. And because he loved us. This is a moment where Jesus goes, Father, here's my will, but it's yours that needs to be done. It's the same thing you and I should be doing in our lives. Second thing, if you have a relationship where God is your Lord, not only do you seek His will first, but second, you have an intimate relationship with Him. You have an intimate relationship with God. Look at Mark 1.35. And rising very early in the morning, what was still dark, He departed and went out to a desolate place, and there He prayed. Do you know what's amazing about Jesus' life in this book? He is always always, always finding time for him and God to be alone. In fact, the busier Jesus' life becomes, the more his ministry picks up steam, the more people are flocking to him, the more you see him finding time to be alone with God. It becomes an absolute priority in his life. Last night, we, uh, me and Nicole got to go on a date. And it was the first date that was actually out of our house, without the children, somewhere else in about nine months to a year, somewhere around there. 
Now granted, most of our conversation was about the children. But it was like the first time in a very long time it was just me and her outside talking. Let me ask you something. When's the last time you had a date with God? When's the last time you intentionally set up time where you knew it was going to be you and God alone and that was it? And the key there is intentionally. Not you went to the doctor's office, the doctor was going to make you wait for 45 minutes and you decided to turn that into prayer time. Not traffic was really bad, you couldn't find a good song you liked, so you shut off the radio and you talked to the Lord. Now when was the last time you planned? This Saturday, from 9 to 11, I'm going here to be with my father and to talk to him. That's what I'm doing. When's the last time you did that? If you don't know, that should scare you. Because let's be honest, any human relationship, if you can't name the last time you've been with someone, your relationship's not in a strong place. If I asked you, when's the last time you hung out with your best friend, and you're like, well, one-on-one? -on -one? Years? I'm betting you and your best friend aren't that close. I sure as heck know if I'm talking to you in your marriage and you're like, man, you know, years since we've been on a date. Issues. So why would it be any different with God? Make time for Him. For you and Him to be together. Throughout this Bible, the men and women that you see who are passionately in love with God, you will constantly find that they are making time for Him. In Exodus 33, you don't have to flip there, but in Exodus 33, it talks about the tent of meeting. In the Old Testament, there was actually a tent that Moses had that he would go to to speak to God. And all of Israel would know when God was speaking to him because a cloud would fall upon the tent and the presence of the Lord could be felt. Moses is one of the few people in all the Bible where it's described that he is a friend of God's. Him and God would talk to each other face to face, endlessly. They had a deep and intimate relationship. Every day he sought him. And here's the thing about this. When you seek God every day, what's different is, you're not just going to God because things are going bad. You're going to God with everything. I mean, when's the last time you had a prayer to God that was just about something silly? When was the last time you had a conversation with him that wasn't profound? I mean, here's how I knew Nicole was the woman I was going to marry. I would talk to her about stupid stuff. I would see dumb little things that would make me laugh, and I'd call her and go like, this just happened, it's hilarious. I knew that I could share any of those thoughts with her, and that I wanted to share those thoughts with her, meant that there was a kind of connection with us that was different, was special. Every conversation you have with God does not need to be this deep theological conversation. Sometimes it can be simply you see a beautiful sunset and you go, thank you, Father. Sometimes it can be you just have something that makes you laugh that nobody else laughs at, but it's special to you, and you know God put it there. And you can just have a little conversation with Him about that. Have an intimate conversation with Him. What I love about the story of Moses is it ends in Deuteronomy 34. I'm not going to read the whole passage to you. But at the end of Moses' life, 
there's probably the coolest act of intimacy in the entire Bible. It comes to the time for Moses to go home. When I say home, not Israel, it's time for him to go to heaven. And it says before God takes him, and it's very clear, he doesn't die because his body is weak. He dies because God is ready for him to come home. Before he dies, God takes him to a high mountaintop and he shows him all the land of Israel. Now the reason this is significant is Moses' whole journey has been trying to get these people to the promised land. And so God takes him to this high mountain and he goes, Here, Moses. Everything you see is the promised land. That's the land your people are going to live in. That's the land your people are going to thrive in. This, Moses, is everything you fought for your whole entire life. I want you to see it. It says after that happens that God called him home. And here's the part that's amazing to me. Do you know who buried Moses? God did. Do you know who knows where Moses is buried? No one but God. God had such a relationship with him. They were so close that it was like, this is my best friend. God didn't want the nation of Israel to take care of it. God wanted to take care of it. God's the one that picked him up. God's the one that laid him to rest. God's the one that presided over his last moments. Because that was his friend. Where that came from is not from Moses being morally superior. In fact, read the story of Moses and you'll realize just as messed up, if not more, than most of us. Sinful guy. Makes bad decisions. Horribly bad decisions sometimes. It didn't change that him and God were best buds. Why? Because Moses took time to be with God. I want to give you one last thing. If God is your Lord, you rely on Him for everything. Everything. You don't rely on Him just for church stuff. You don't rely on Him just for financial things. You don't rely on Him just when things go bad. You don't just go to God when you're at the end of your rope and now need Him to bail you out. You rely on Him for everything. Have you guys ever heard of uh, Richard and Dick Hoyt? Maybe you'll just notice them by pictures. 37 years ago, Rick, the father, had a friend who was doing a charity run. And he decided in this charity run he was going to take his son Dick, who has cerebral palsy and can't do much physically. And they just decided he wasn't really an athlete, never really ran a lot. Decided he was going to take his son and, and push him in a uh, wheelchair and, and just run this race. It was a short one. After the race, his son said, Dad, when we run, I don't feel handicapped. What that started was a 37-year journey where these two did over a thousand different races. This father has carried his son in triathlons, biathlons, marathons. Now, have you ever seen a triathlon? You know what that is, right? That's running, biking, and swimming. He has a special bike he puts his son into and he pedals him the entire way. He has a boat that he drags as he's swimming so that his son can compete with him. He moves them from the boat, lifts them up, puts them in the bike, 
gets on the bike, races, gets him out of there, puts him in his wheelchair, and then runs with him. A thousand different races. Do you know what the best part is of talking to these two? The son doesn't, for a second, act like he doesn't do the race. He will talk to you the whole time about how he ran the race, how he swam, how he biked. Now the cynical ones of us go, you didn't do anything. You sat in a chair. Dad did everything. But you know what? They're so close. Their hearts are so linked. They know they do it together. See, Richard knows that without his son wanting it, he would never do those things. And when I saw this the other day, I went, man, that's how my relationship with God should be. I should realize I'm the kid in the chair. I can't do anything. I can't do anything without him. I'm not smart enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not holy enough. I am nothing without him. I need God every single step. A lot of us don't treat him that way. A lot of us, the mentality we have is, God, let me run as far as I can. When I pass out, then you come get me. Then you can come, then you can come get me, God. And God goes, you don't get it. It's not how it's supposed to be. It's you and me every single step. Every single moment. That's what's got to drive us. It's got to be that kind of love and that kind of intimacy where every moment you're riding with Him. And here's the thing that's kind of crazy about this, guys. If you don't have that, then you don't get this. I've talked to Christians before who are like, Christianity is no fun. The reason Christianity is no fun is if you don't have a relationship with God, then it's just a bunch of rules. I mean, if you strip out the relationship with God, you kind of just join like a country club without tennis courts. All right? You pay your, your dues with your givings and your offerings. You show up at a designated time. You sit in uncomfortable chairs and you listen to a guy talk for 45 minutes. Sometimes it's inspirational. Sometimes you're bored. Sometimes you're thinking about what you're going to eat next. I don't know. But yeah, that's boring. And then on top of it, you're given this book of rules that your culture doesn't agree with that you now try to follow. Yeah, that's boring. That's absolutely boring. The reason it's not boring is when you're like, no, all that's secondary. I'm in love with a person that's amazing. I have a God that knows no limit. I have a God that does the impossible every single day. And you know what happens? I get to be part of it. This limitless power, this unbelievable love, this force that can't be reckoned with, He invites me to be on the front lines with Him. I have a God that when I mess up and no one else understands what's going on, He knows my thoughts. He not only forgives me because I know you weren't trying to mess it up. You have a person that totally gets you completely. And if that's what the core of your relationship is, then you're good to go. Before I conclude today, I want to invite someone up to kind of share how their relationship with God has got them through some things. 
Because brothers and sisters, I'll be honest with you, the rules in that book won't get you through anything. That book won't get you through anything. Not if you don't have the relationship. But on the flip side, if you have the relationship, you will be able to face anything. And stand victorious. Why? Because you realize it's God pushing your chair. And He ain't going to stop. So before we wrap today, I'm going to ask uh, Sister Pat to come up and just share a few words of her experience with God and some of the things that He's done for her. Thank you, Brother Luke. First, I want to thank the Lord for getting me and John through the last 10 months. Drawing from his strength and love has helped us realize that this cancer is beatable. Next, I want to thank my family, my church family, and all my friends for your support, your phone calls, your cards, and your prayers. They meant so much to me and John. When I first found out I had cancer, my first words were, God has me, and he has. A few days later, the question came up, how do we afford this? I said, we'll pray. Pray, God will answer this. And he did. In his way, he, he answered it. A copay relief fund was set up through the Cancer Society for me. So we were out very little money. I will be on cancer medicine for the next five years. So I still need your prayers and your support. But I still know God has us. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Pat. Thank you. beauty when you have God is, guys, you can face it all. Uh, I'm always reminded in Psalm 23, he promises that he is our shepherd, whether we are in green pastures or whether we're in the valley of the shadow of death. And so it's not the circumstances that should ever make us scared. What should always bring us comfort is who's standing by us. If you're standing next to the king, you don't care where you are. You know, he can face it all. Ask Brother Joe to come up with us uh, and lead us in our prayer time, and then we'll close out.